Lord, we ask once again that you would guide us, help us in our understanding, help us to see the application and the importance of these things, which may in some ways seem so simple, some ways seem so familiar, and yet there is much that is missed because we don't pay careful enough attention. So help us to do that once again this week, that you may be glorified and honored in all things, and that our understanding will only improve our witness, will impact our faithfulness, and following after you. In Christ we pray. Amen. Once again this morning, before I dive right into the text, there are broader subjects that I will find at various messages to include, and one comes in here. The creation and flood accounts, that's going well beyond my text, in the opening chapters of Genesis are often compared to the creation and flood stories of other cultures in the Near East and even to the creation and flood accounts of other peoples and other cultures all over the world. There are, without question, interesting parallels strongly suggesting that there was some form of influence from one account to another. When these comparisons are made by Bible critics, those who don't really believe the Scriptures or who don't believe them fully, when these comparisons are made even by certain Christians who may believe God's Word and the Gospel but do not view the Genesis accounts of the creation and the flood as fully and fundamentally historically accurate, the idea usually is, and that's for really the whole subject area, that Genesis, the Genesis material, we're focused right now on the creation part, was derived, was drawn from in various ways from other such accounts and stories that exist and that there was there is a consistency with the way that the Genesis text the writer or writers many think have presented this that is consistent with the thinking and the notions of other cultures around the world and certainly in the Near East Ancient creation and flood stories from all over the world are basically mythical. They are stories told in so many cultures and among so many peoples about how things came to be, how things happened even after they came to be. But the stories that are told, these myths, and by myth there it's something which is not true, there's a technical use of the term myth that doesn't necessarily mean that, but that's generally what's understood in these various cultures and stories. The, the content of creation stories, especially flood stories, are, are obviously fantastic fantasies which are not based in historical reality. Now, that is specifically and importantly for us to observe not true of the creation and the flood accounts in the Bible, which are presented in serious language that is 
historical. I'll have more to say that at other points in the text where it becomes very important to observe. The creation account in the Bible reflects the things that really occurred, that God really did in reality, and the biblical accounts are consistent with what we know from genuine scientific observation conclusion. Now, they can't observe creation itself, but the things that are left behind, genuine scientific observation, is never been shown to be inconsistent with anything that God has said in the creation, in the flood, or the rest of Scripture. That's highly debated. Most of our world thinks that so much that science, it's not all science, declares has disqualified much of what the Bible seems to say. Creation and flood accounts from around the world and from other Near Eastern cultures, as I said, do, interestingly, have elements in them, pieces of them, if you will, which are strikingly parallel in certain data points, you might think of it that way, with the biblical account. But none of the others, none of the others, present a coherent, sober, historical account as a whole. When you study the accounts from all over the world, and I have, you quickly realize that the Genesis account is the original. Now, so many people that study this don't think that. But you quickly realize, if you're at all paying attention to the quality of the accounts, that the Genesis account is the original, and the others display pieces of parallel, that are parallel, that are similar, but only in pieces. And that phenomenon, Genesis account being first, makes sense if mankind began with Adam and Eve and then again in a very real way with Noah's family at and after the flood, just as Scripture tells us. But beyond certain specific interesting parallels to the biblical account, all the others have the flavor of myth and legend. Whereas the biblical account comes across as genuine truth from an eyewitness. The eyewitness, of course, is God himself, who revealed these truths of what he did in his word. If evolutionary assumptions are accepted as factual, which is where still the bulk of our world is, if they are accepted as factual, then the obviously historical account in the early chapters of Genesis must be reinterpreted to match those alleged evolutionary truths. Thus, comparisons, when they are drawn to the mythical origin and flood stories of other cultures, to suggest that, like them, the Genesis account of the creation and the flood are merely mythical or that only slight portions of the biblical text are factually true, like God actually created. But much of the biblical text is seen, even by many Christians, as poetic or figurative or fantasy, which can be dismissed in terms of actual literal historical reality, leaving, if you do it, if you dismiss that, no conflict with popular evolutionary ideas. It is said, well look, Genesis is not a scientific document. 
It is much more like the mythic legends of other cultures. Well, I would say, Genesis is not a scientific document, but it is true, and whatever matters, true science, uh, whatever matters of true science, touch on the Genesis account. Genesis is always found to be accurate and reliable. It is thus not fundamentally like the stories and legends of so many other cultures. Yes, there are certain parallels. Yes, there are origin stories or they are flood stories. But it is not really like them if you take an honest look at them as a whole. They are truth. That is the Genesis account. The reason it's different is this is the word of God. And it is unique as such. All the other creation myths and creation stories and flood stories, these are all just human creations. Oh, they claim various gods are involved, but they are not the word of God like the Bible is. So as we read our text today, I'm not quite ready to be there, we understand it to convey a truthful accurate, reliable account of what actually took place when God did the things that he declared that he did as he so clearly puts them forth, states them in straightforward and simple terms in such a fashion that, as I have said before, even a child can grasp the basics of what is being said and revealed here in the scriptures. Also, notice that the biblical creation count does, in fact, imply, maybe it's stronger than imply, that the gods of so many pagan cultures are false gods. How does it do this? The various gods that have been worshipped in various other cultures for a long time, or at least they were so in the ancient times, the various gods that have been worshipped are, according to Genesis, mere creations of God and not deities, not gods at all. The gods of light and darkness, the gods of sky and sea, the gods of earth and vegetation, the gods of sun and moon and stars. There, there, all kinds of people have believed that these things are deities, are gods. The gods of various animals, the gods of human beings. Genesis 1 declares that all of these are in reality, in historical reality, actually creations of God, the one true God, and are not in any ways deities themselves. Without question, the Genesis account is at odds, therefore, with so many accounts of false religions and pagan cultures. Even though in studies of these things, parallels are often drawn, and then we are told to think that these parallels mean there are great similarities and Genesis is much like the others. Allah, it's not really historical. We don't have to think of it that way, at least not thoroughly so. To suggest that the biblical account was derived from the others as though they were there first and then the biblical account. Yes, Moses wrote later, but the biblical account is based on facts that go back to the very beginning. 
to suggest that it's derived from these other stories, to suggest that it is dependent upon these other stories, to suggest that it must be interpreted consistent with the other stories, is just bluntly ridiculous. And it denies the clear teachings God has given us in His Word. You either believe what God has told us, or you are in a worldview with no certain knowledge of origins, of salvation, or of future destiny. It's that simple. Now let me say another thing very broadly. Looking at the various religious stories, myths, fantasies, legends of creation and beyond, what is thought here is that these were the production of ancient peoples who were primitive. They're not sophisticated like we are today. This sort of thinking is widely accepted, even among Christians. It appeals to our ego. It appeals to our sinful pride. Because it's primitive, these things aren't really talking. They didn't even think about it in concrete reality terms. They, they just created stories of what they say happened, but we understand these things to be just mythical. And the Bible would be viewed similarly by many. The reality is that's not true. And when we think of primitive peoples, we're already assuming a kind of evolutionary development model. In reality, what God's Word tells us is that the initial humans, Adam and Eve, were very sophisticated, very knowledgeable, and that if anything, what has been happening since the creation is a slow devolving, if you will, a slow getting worse. And yes, there's more sophistication. Yes, there's great technology. But sinfulness grows. It doesn't decrease. And these things have an entirely different explanation. The idea that the ancients couldn't write clearly or historically is simply nonsense. And any fair comparison of the biblical account with all of these others, many of which I was forced to study in college in various religion classes, any fair comparison says, this is obviously different than the others. It's the unique one. It's the original one. It's the one that is speaking in clear, sober, truthful terms. So, let's look at the text, Genesis 1. I'll begin again at verse 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was formless and void, and darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was moving over the surface of the waters. Then God said, let there be light, and there was light. God saw that the light was good, and God separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night, and there was evening, and there was morning one day. This is a pretty straightforward historical description of what God actually did. Compare it to any of these other creation stories, and you will find immediately they talk about things radically differently and in such great mythological terms. We've reflected on verse 1 two times already, so we now move on to the remainder of the account today of God's first day of creation, verses 2 to 5. Actually includes verse 1, but we'll look at now verses 2 to 5. But before we even begin to look at the words used 
and what they mean and what they indicate, we must observe one of the earliest widespread attempts to understand Genesis in a way consistent with an acceptance of evolution and long, long ages of time, the suggestion that vast amounts of time, because we know the world has been around for billions of years, supposedly, vast amounts of time may be found between the first verse of Genesis and the second. If you go to the text, you look at that text now, between what's said in verse 1 and what's said in verse 2, there was a huge gap of time, perhaps billions or millions of years. This is a theory that is identified as the gap theory. It's a big gap in time between the first two verses. Gap theorists think that God's six-day creation week begins in Genesis 1, verse 3, not at verse 1, 2, and 3, and 4, and 5. The first day begins at 3, and before that, in the dateless past, God had created a perfect heaven and a perfect earth, and Satan was the ruler of that earth, populated by human beings, but human beings that were not meant for eternal life. So they were more animal-like, but human beings. And animals, and plants, etc. Satan desiring to become like God, Isaiah chapter 14, rebelled, and sin entered God's perfect universe. God judged that first world, between the first two verses, with a flood, which is why you have a reference in verse 2 to water all over the earth. This world that had been created was destroyed and was now buried in water, Genesis 1, verse 2. Plant, animal, and human fossils found all over the earth today are from God's judgment on Satan's world that God created, and they are not related genetically to the plants, animals, and human beings created by God in six days. They are not the descendants of. This is the ones we have today are a new creation, a re-creation. The phrase, this is the gap theorist idea. Look at verse 2. The phrase formless and void and the term darkness in the second verse are seen as describing a sinful, fallen state resulting from the judgment of God on Satan's world and then a recreation follows, verse 3 and following, Genesis 1, a recreation in which God created for six days, um, at which point the thinking of gap theorists about the six days, verse 3 and following, everything happened just thousands of years ago. Their thinking is really very similar to literal day young earth creationists at that point, not earlier. That's where they put all the time and all the fossil record in. The gap theory took hold when it was advocated in the notes of the popular King James Version Schofield Reference Bible. When my parents, after we became Christians at roughly the same time, my parents went out and bought me a Bible and they bought me a King James Version, which was the one to get, at that point at least, and 
I so appreciate your amens. That one, we'll talk later. Um, <laughs> so, <laughs> um, but, but the point is, what they got me, they got me a study Bible. Well, why not? Let's have John have something that he can begin to look into meaning. They got me a Schofield reference study Bible. It's a very good study Bible. Not at this point. Not, at, not at the, between the first two verses. There are enormous problems with the gap theory. The gap theory, again, seeking to accommodate Genesis to evolutionary hypotheses. Genesis 1 and verse 2 is not, gap theorists say it is, but it is not a main clause independent from verse 1. I'm, I'm really shortening this because I know you don't want a grammar lesson. That second verse has three circumstantial clauses that are descriptive clauses and they are dependent on and modify the main clause in verse 1. It begins, does the second verse, with the Hebrew letter vow on a non-verb. Don't mean much to you, but I'll say it just to be clear and specific. That formation in Hebrew grammar indicates dependence. Vow with a non-verb. Grammatically speaking, I've shortened that dramatically. The gap theory just doesn't work. It just does not work. It's no longer so popular today because this problem is recognized. It would never have been suggested but for the fact that alleged great age of the earth was thought to be a problem. It was thought to be proven by science. There are many who still think that that's true, that the alleged great age of the earth has been proven by science. Further, the gap theory does not remove the problem of death and disease before the fall of Adam in Genesis 3, which is another significant problem. Genesis 1, verses 1 and 2, are part, as I've said earlier, they are part of the six days of God's creation. They are part of the first day. And as God's whole creation is declared good, repeatedly throughout and very good in verse 31 there is nothing evil or fallen or bad in the description of Genesis 1 and verse 2 so let's talk about that a little bit formless and void perhaps your translation uses slightly different terms formless and void describes literally a condition of emptiness which is not yet filled. It is unfilled, like an unshaped lump of clay before the potter's loving hands mold and shape it. The clay is there. There's nothing wrong with the clay, but the potter hasn't yet molded and shaped it. Without form, that term is found a number of times in Scripture describing a morally neutral condition, meaning it doesn't have to be understood as an evil condition. In Genesis 1 and verse 2, Moses is clearly describing a condition at this point on the first day of God's creation in which God created a mass covered by water and there was not yet any dry land a place that was as yet uninhabited 
In other words, a place that was not yet suitable for habitation, but not a place that was fallen or evil. There are only two other times, other than Genesis 1 and verse 2, where formless and void are used together. Jeremiah 4.23, Isaiah 34.11. In both, there is judgment in the context. However, that doesn't mean that judgment must be applied in the context of Genesis 1 and verse 2 where the words formless and void do not in themselves, and they don't even in themselves in those other passages, imply necessary evil. The reason we know there's judgment is because of other things going on in those passages, not simply the use of these two words. And in Genesis 1-2, in the context of all the statements about how everything God did was so good, and the end of the chapter is all very good, these simply don't have to have judgment. The gap theory just dissolves if there isn't some form of judgment that's there. Now many have referred to formless and void as a chaotic state. That's actually all right. It's not the best translation of the terms, but it's all right. If by chaotic, one merely means a shapeless, unordered mass. But often chaos is taken to mean something less than good and a condition of confusion that has resulted from a destruction which is not a literal part of the meaning of those two Hebrew verbs formless or void. Well, what about Isaiah 45 verse 18 which says that God did not create the earth Formless. Whew. But, the verse goes on, formed it to be inhabited. Well, again, in context, what that verse simply means is that God did not create the earth for the purpose of its being a formless, empty place. You, you might say that so many other planets were created by God with no greater purpose than that they were empty places alright there wasn't there's more form that's described in Genesis 1 2 but that there wasn't much there God created the earth however with the intention that it be ordered and organized and inhabited Isaiah 45 18 refers to the purpose for the finished creation. God didn't create at any step in the creation with the goal that it ultimately be formless and void. That's not what happened. That was only the initial stage. By telling us in Genesis 1 verses 1 and 2 that he first created the material and then gave it ordered form, God is clearly establishing the fact, and this is important, that the world was, from its very origin, from its very creation, carefully designed. One of the great arguments for the existence of God is the design argument. Look at the design that exists in our universe, in our world. God created it that it would be designed, not to leave it in this formless void mass. That was very temporary, just a piece of the first day. Gap theorists suggest that the fossil column was formed in God's flood judgment on the initial world of Satan. If so, if that's really what happened, and it's not, 
that is so similar in many ways to the six literal day young earth creationists and what they say about the formation of the fossil record largely in Noah's flood. And thus, thus, one of the main reasons to accommodate evolution to Scripture is removed, even by the gap theorist theory, and clearly at odds with the evolutionary explanation of long ages and sediment being laid down over long periods of time, fossilization occurring over long periods of time. Move on. Verse 2, darkness. Now we all know. Darkness in Scripture is often used metaphorically. It is often used metaphorically to signify something evil. Something that jeopardizes life, perhaps. Something that pertains to the realm of the dead. But the question that one must always ask with any biblical term is how is the biblical term being used in context? Darkness here in Genesis verse 1, I mean verse 2 of chapter 1, is used of an actual entity and not as a symbol for evil. Darkness need not be evil since God created darkness as part of his good creation. Psalm 18 verse 11, Genesis 1 verse 31. God created darkness as well as light, and he created, notice the other term in that verse, the deep. This is a common biblical term for oceans. None of these are in any way evil at verse 2 of Genesis. They are simply not fully formed or filled or shaped yet. That's coming as you read on in the other part of the creation account. The deep is the same term that is used of the fountains of the great deep at the time of the flood, Genesis 7, 11, Genesis 8, verse 2. Then you also have 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 5, earth formed out of water and by water. That seems to refer to this watery mass in verse 2 of the creation account, Genesis chapter 1. Psalm 104, verses 5 and 6, indicates that the earth was covered with a deep, with the deep rather, like a garment, and the waters of the earth were standing above the mountains at the creation time. That appears to be a reference to verse 2 of Genesis chapter 1, which describes, in, in the most literal way, that God created the raw materials, if you will, of the earth, a mixture of elements covered with water in darkness, and then God began to shape it. The gap theory is not good biblical interpretation. It's nothing more than a strained attempt, and there have been many, we'll talk about other ones at other points, a strained attempt to accommodate evolution and old age to the biblical account. No one would have ever thought this theory up. No one did until recent time. And they only did because they thought, well, we've, we've got to have long, long ages. And the Bible just doesn't give us a, an account of long, long ages. The gap theory is a failed attempt. Now, let's move on. Genesis chapter 1, verse 2 also tells us the Spirit of God was moving or hovering over the surface of the waters. 
Again, this is not language such as you find in the ancient myths of creation around the world. This is language that can be understood very directly, literally. The word spirit, of course, may be translated wind or breath, meaning perhaps that God breathed over the waters or that God caused a wind to blow over the waters. The presence, therefore, of the third member of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit, is certainly not necessarily being stated here, and yet I think that a reference here to the Holy Spirit is likely. Why? The word moving, hovering, is found three times in the Old Testament with a meaning range that includes cherishing, moving gently, the word I don't think is describing a wind, but I think would fit well with the activity of God's Holy Spirit, the third member of the Godhead of the Trinity, which we are told elsewhere, his presence is like the wind, or, or, or we might say like God's breath, but it's really the Spirit who is present. I think that what's implied in that statement in Genesis 1-2 is the protective presence of God in the person of the Holy Spirit. Much like the eagle that hovers or flutters over its young protectively, Deuteronomy 32 verse 11. I think it points therefore to the presence of the triune God at creation. The Father, clearly God created the heavens. The Spirit is present. And we know that the Son of God was present because we know that the Son of God was the very agent of creation. The Gospel of John, chapter 1, verses 1, 2, and 3. The Holy Spirit's presence points to divine care, divine supervision. Also, the Holy Spirit's presence displays God's active power energizing, if you will, the universe, shaping it, forming it, organizing it. And it's the Spirit who gives or brings life to it. The Spirit is God, so God does this, but in that part, part of his personages. He brings life to it after first making the earth mass, Genesis 1, verse 2, an ideal place for those created in God's image. He's doing that in the remainder of the days. He's forming, shaping, filling. It wasn't ready for human habitation at verse 2, but it will become ready by the Spirit's work as he energizes, organizes, etc. Verse 3, Then God said, Let there be light. And there was light. God willed to create what he desired. That's all it took. He willed and thus created what he desired. He called into existence this light by nothing more than his spoken word. Speaking things into existence is a reflection of God's own special divine name, Yahweh. Related is the divine name Yahweh, related to the verb to be, related to the famous 
responds to Moses, I am who I am, Exodus 3 and verse 14. So in effect, just as the text says, God says, let there be, in this case, light. He'll say other things as we move on. Let there be, and there was. Took God nothing more than that. God said, that's found 10 times in the first chapter of Genesis. It indicates the power of God to create by simply speaking things into existence. That's all he has to do. Now, some have tried to say, many, in fact, have tried to say, you know, God said, God created this, God created that. That's really all that we learn from Genesis 1. And it's the primary thing. God exists, and God creates everything by his great power. The, the sense that that's all that we learn in Genesis 1 is very popular among those who are called theistic, God-believing, evolutionists. They say there is a God and he created, but science will tell us how God proceeded with his creating. Science will tell us how long it took. Don't be fooled by the reference to six days. That's like mythical. That's sort of like these other myths, all right? Science, the truth, will tell us what really happened. Theistic evolutionists interpret Genesis by the alleged conclusions of basically evolutionary so-called science. To the contrary, Genesis is God's word, and God, I've said this before, it bears saying again, God does not surrender the interpretation or the meaning of his word to modern scientific theories. He is not dependent on the conclusions of science to tell us what happened. He's already told us what happened and what he did. And surely, God said, God that therein created, is not all that Genesis 1 tells us. There is much here about what he created and in what order he created that which he created and how long it took. So the one who is uncreated light, that would be God, brought created light originally into existence. The one who dwells in unapproachable light, 1 Timothy 6.16, that would be God, commanded and created light physical to exist in the place where there had only been, at that point, his creation of darkness. And the light came into existence as God commanded it to. The existence of light, note, preceded by the sun, preceded rather, the sun, the moon, and the stars. When God created light, in the very beginning, Genesis 1 and verse 3, the the, there was no physical source for the light. That's indicated by the fact that he created it first, implying that the light came from himself, he being the source. That's consistent with 
light's association with Jesus, who is God, in John chapter 1, verses 1 to 5. Note also, in the new heavens and the new earth, which we all look forward to, if we have believed in Christ, light will again be provided by God and the Lamb. The Lamb, of course, is the Son who was the creative agent. Light will again be provided in the new heavens and the new earth by them without need of the sun in the sky. Revelation 22 and verse 5. So, the light was not God. It was something that God created. God is light, we read in Scripture, but that is a profound metaphor involving many aspects of light. Literal light drives out literal darkness. And the light that God drives out is driving, I'm sorry, the light that God is drives out spiritual darkness. Because in God there is no darkness. Now you can't read that in Scripture and say, well, but he, but he created darkness. Right. It's not a part of his being, he created it though. But it's not who he is. What he is spiritually drives out darkness. Because in him there is no darkness. That is, no spiritual darkness, no evil at all. Literal light shows the literal way. And God as light provides the revelation for the correct way to, we might say, think. The correct way to live so that one can walk in the light. 1 John chapter 1 and verse 7. Light is also, in Scripture, a symbol for salvation. In many ways, the statement that God is light is the thesis of the Apostle John's first letter. It includes, God is light, the definition of God's character. The whole point includes implication for life, the life of a of a believing disciple in God. First John, that letter, lays bare the relationship between the character of God as light and the Christian life as walking in that light of God. Thus, it is not insignificant that on the very first day of creation, God created physical light indicative of so much about him and about relationship to him which will come. Verse 4. God saw that the light was good and God separated the light from the darkness. Everything that God created was good. Everything. All of it was very good. God, after all, is the standard of goodness. There is no way to define goodness but by God. There is no agreement, really, on what goodness is other than looking at God, God's character, what God has declared as right and wrong. That standard is simply not found outside of God. The perfection and the goodness of God's original creation is extremely important. God is not the direct author, originator, or cause of evil. He is holy and good. And we cannot blame him for the evil in the world. That comes from the fall of created beings 
who freely chose evil in defiance of God. The fact that the creation is declared good before human beings are present, before human beings have been created, suggests that the creation is good beyond what it can do for us as human beings. Coming as it does from this all good God. The creation is inherently good as originally created. This puts the lie to all of those theories and all of those beliefs that the physical is evil and the spiritual is good. No, the physical is perfectly fine and good as God created it. Now, under the curse, it's not all good. But that doesn't mean that physical things are in themselves somehow evil as compared to spiritual things. We're told in verse 4 that God separated the light from the darkness. God is the one who forms light and creates darkness, Isaiah 45, verse 7. Neither of which, darkness or light, are inherently evil in themselves in God's creation. God created the light but did not destroy the darkness. This separating of light and darkness, that language is interesting, understand it in the most direct literal way, seems to be God starting the cycle of days which experience on earth a separation of light and darkness. And note again that God did this before creating the sun in the sky. This counterintuitive order of creation, light before the sun, is an indication of the authenticity of the Genesis account. Why? If the Bible is a product of later writers, later editors, not Moses in this case, as so many have believed, they would surely have modified what it said, or written it that way, to fit their own understanding. They would surely have talked about the sun as the original source of light, or other stars as the original source of light. They didn't, it doesn't, because this is actually what happened, and this is an authentic account from God himself. Verse 5, we got there. I know it's timely. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night, and there was evening, and there was morning one day. All right, let's start right off as it does. Giving light and darkness their names... In doing that, God is asserting his authority over the physical aspects of his creation. There is an Egyptian text, not that it's authoritative, but there is an Egyptian text which describes the period before creation as the time when no name of anything had been named. To name something and this was common in ancient cultures, is to assert authority over it, and God gives names to day and night and earth and sky and sea, etc. He is the unrivaled ultimate authority over everything that exists. When Adam will name the names of animals, he is asserting an authority over them. The animal rights activists are not right. We're not just the same as other animals. 
Genesis 1 describes the creation in the language here at verse 5, and we'll go on in the language, so we'll have more to say about it, but it describes the creation in six literal, normal solar days. The light and dark part of the day, day and night, comprise together one literal 24-hour solar day, is the way we call it. That being the case, that the term day is being used of real days, or even just of the light part of the day, that being the case, there is no possibility of evolution in this account of the creation of all, you know, vegetative life, animal life, human life, widely thought to have evolved over millions of years. No, God did this all within the space of six days. It seems that the earth immediately began rotating on its axis and there was light on one side and darkness on the other side and that again before we even had the sun in the sky. One cycle of darkness and light is obviously one normal 24-hour day, not a million days, not a million years, not a billion years, as many Christians who hold what is called the day-age view, that's not the gap theory, but the day-age view, think that view also accommodating elements of evolutionary thinking to Scripture. To ensure that we understand that these days were meant as normal, literal, what we would call a 24-hour day, they are described as having evening and morning, unmistakably indicating a normal day as we experience it. Evening first, then morning, is the Hebrew understanding of a day. For them, each day began at roughly 6 p.m. with the evening first. Evening occurs, this word, 132 times in the Old Testament. Morning occurs about 200 times in the Old Testament. In all cases, except for the use of the word morning in Job 38.7, which says, when the morning stars sang together, an obviously fi figurative reference in context there, but in no other case are the words evening or morning, whether they're used together as they often are or separately as they often are, neither in, or in any such case other than that one example in Genesis 38, 7, which is clearly a different context, does either of them have any other meaning, evening and morning, as anything other than a literal part of a normal 24-hour day. Couple that with the fact that God commanded a work week for man in the Ten Commandments of six days of labor and one day of rest patterned, we're told, on God's creation in six days and resting on the seventh day. And anyone who takes the Bible seriously as God's Word must accept creation by God in six literal days. I didn't used to, but I certainly do now. Moses was writing historically and literally, not metaphorically and figuratively. There'll be more to say about that with different terms as we march through the text. There is no reason, therefore, in the text to deny creation in six ordinary literal solar days, and such denial where it's made is imposing outside ideas on Scripture. There's no reason according to the text, to say that the world is billions of years old. That, too, has been imposed on Scripture. Evolution and old age of the earth and the universe is not supported by what Scripture says, nor can Scripture be rightly interpreted to accommodate such 
notions. Attempts to change the clear meaning of the Genesis account, this account which is foundational, ultimately all such attempts logically lead to unbiblical interpretations and unbiblical conclusions throughout the rest of Scripture, not just here. Failure to correctly understand and believe what Genesis tells us leads to the imploding of biblical faith. At least it leads there logically. I'm not saying that you can't believe in Jesus and be saved and believe all kinds of crazy unbiblical things as well. But to put them together in any kind of meaningful way, the whole thing falls apart. If all you do is dismiss the historicity and the clear understanding of the terms found in the first chapter, second, third of Genesis. You either accept that all is written or you guide your life and your expectations for eternity by it or you reject this and have no hope in the face of deserved judgment. God's word in Genesis is clear and it provides a vital understanding of what God did and the ramifications for how we are to view God and how we are to view the world and how we are to view our lives and how we are to view even the afterlife in eternity. Upon its foundation, this beginning, Genesis 1, all that follows rises because of God and only because of God. Misunderstand this foundation and all that follows is uncertain, it is loose, and it is subject to speculation. Why not reinterpret terms that are used by God all over Scripture if you can do it with these clear ones in the opening chapter? And what follows from that, a reinterpretation of the terms here, is a dramatic breakdown of modern culture on so many subjects and nothing rests then on the objective foundation of absolute truth. If you dismiss the foundation as absolute truth from God, then all things are muddy and uncertain and we end up with so many subjects which have been now taken in ways that are unthinkable. What is a man? What is a woman? Do we even know the objective, truthful foundation in the Lord God rests on what he did, the Lord God, the creator of the heavens and the earth? Let's pray. Lord, I suspect that some of this will seem dry. Some of this will seem not so interesting as perhaps a lesson from the Gospels or from your epistles or even some other parts of the Old Testament. But these things are so terribly important to understand who you are, to see what you have done and what that means for us, to see this undergirds everything that is solid and secure and that has meaning and value and is something that we can count on. Without the foundation, we count on nothing. We may believe things. There are all kinds of people who believe things without any real evidence. You have given in your word that which is evidential, that which can be checked, that which is reliable. And this is unique, certainly, in ancient writings. 
So, Father, we ask that you would help us to see the importance of these things, to believe them with confidence, and to share them and what they mean and why that meaning is so important with others, with all others that we can. We ask this in Christ's name, to serve Christ, to serve you, to glorify and honor you in all things, we pray. Amen. If you would stand with me again. May God bless you in the teaching of his truth. And may the wisdom and insight you gain from his truth spill over out of your life onto so many others for the glory of God and Christ. Depart in his peace. Amen.